0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Asking e Anything presented by Mosher Consulting. I'm your host, Angel León, Mosher's HR advisor. We are back, ladies and gentlemen. After a little bit of a break, Asking e Anything is back for season two. And to start us off, we have a great first episode. In this week's episode, we're bringing in Dr. Krista Longton, with whom we'll talk about improving communication through improvisation. Dr. Longton is an associate professor of communication studies in the Indiana University School of Liberal Arts at IUPUI and an assistant dean for faculty affairs and professional development at the Indiana University School of Medicine. She researches communication education and faculty development in the sciences and health professions. Krista, it is a pleasure to have you with us here and ask you anything to talk about such an interesting topic. How are you?
1: I'm good, thanks. Thanks so much for having me
0: pleasure is ours, trust us. Um, Yesterday, we had uh, that call to kind of set us up for this. And I can tell you, we were all very excited about having this conversation. So let me start by asking you first, I want to know how this idea of improv and communication came together. Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you a little bit of history of improv as a sort of theater art. And that'll, I think, get us into this conversation about Uh, communication and improv and why they work so well together. So um, improv in the United States was really developed by Viola Spolin, who is a theater artist. Um, She was based in Chicago. um, And one of the things that's, I think, interesting about her work is that she worked really closely with Jane Addams Hull House, which, if you're familiar, was really a community development effort. So it was about bringing together communities of immigrants, as well as folks who lived in Chicago for many years and building relationships between those groups. So Spolin really saw improv and theater as a tool to build connections between people. And um, that I think became the basis for seeing improv uh, not just as a way to make people laugh or as a theater art, but to see improv as a tool to help us connect with one another. So you can see kind of from that history that it easily moves us into thinking about how can the concepts behind improvisation help us build relationships and communicate more effectively with one another. More recently, um, we've seen folks use improv as a tool to do lots of different kinds of organizational development or um, professional development or human resources kinds of activities. So Um, The work that I do is um, a sort of subset of improvisation called Applied Improvisation, and um, we can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like.
0: Sure. So that actually leads in perfectly into my next question, because I was going to ask you, what is Applied Improvisation? And maybe just as importantly, what is it not?
1: Yeah, great question. So when folks think about improvisation or think about improvisational theater, usually they think about comedy, Um, like the show Whose Line Is It Anyway, uh, which was a really popular show in the United States a few years ago, or even Mm -hmm. maybe some of the work on uh, Saturday Night Live um, or Second City in Chicago. And so we tend to associate it with comedy, but Um, Improvisation and applied improvisation is really um, a theater art that lots of different actors use as a tool to connect with other theater artists and so applied improvisation in particular. Is using some of the games and activities that are associated with improv outside of the theater to foster growth to develop new and flexible mindsets and to really help folks communicate more effectively in today's sort of volatile and uncertain world and work environment.
0: Interesting. So I I do wanna touch on a little bit about what you said about games and activities that are done uh, for that. So I had a question here about explain the concept and I think this kind of ties into it. Can you explain the concept of getting out of your own way and talk through some of those exercises that you use to help people uh, develop this trait.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the concept of getting out of your own way is kind of one of the tenets of improv. And there are a bunch of them. There's sort of principles or um, mindsets um, that we use kind of when we talk about improv that help us to connect with other people. And so the way that that improv artists, the way that improv practitioners often do this is through improv games. And so um, some of you have probably even played some of these games like at camp, or if you were a scout, um, many of these games kind of show up in those spaces, Um, but they're really designed to um, ask you to kind of get out of your head and get connecting with other people. So as an example, um, we play a game at the beginning of many of our workshops that we do or trainings that we do where we use improv, where we ask folks to have an entire conversation where um, one individual uh, makes a proposition, like this is what I'm gonna do this weekend. And the other individual in the pair responds with yes, but, and then you know, the conversation moves back and forth with every sentence starting with yes, but. And obviously it shuts the conversation down pretty quickly. You run out of things to say. And then we ask folks to have the conversation again, switch places and start each sentence with yes, and. And really encourage folks to say that, okay, how could you keep the conversation going? So what if your goal that you have in that conversation is to keep the conversation moving, instead of your goal being to just answer the question and move on. And so those kinds of experiential activities are really central to the improv experience. Um, And for me, I think, um, and some of my research actually supports this, are a critical part of improving people's communication skills, having these experiential activities as a part of the education environment
0: that's an interesting exercise because as you as you mentioned I mean if I say I'm going skiing this weekend and we're doing this exercises this exercise you say yes but and then this goes down a road that maybe I don't want to you know it's 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 interesting because it can bring positive negatives into question into play while we're having this conversation and so as you said it kind of develops our communication skills because we're looking for ways to maybe outwit or outsmart the next the next answer am I right is that something
1: yeah you're on the right track actually what might be helpful is to try it for just three or four sentences so do you want to try it for just a minute
0: sure why not
1: sure okay so um this weekend I plan to mow my lawn now start a sentence
0: yeah go ahead yes yes but it's going to rain
1: Yes, but I really need to get the lawn mowed because my neighbors mentioned it to me.
0: Yes, but while you're, while you're mowing the lawn, you're going to get wet, the grass is going to be wet, so there's really no rhyme or reason as to why you would do that.
1: Yes, but maybe there'll be a bl- break in the rain and I can find a time to get it done because it's really important to me.
0: Ooh. Ooh, this is hard, um, right? Yeah, like, this yeah, is like it, I it's like hard. I, used, <laughs> I feel like I've used my answer and I don't know where to go.
1: <laughs> right. So this is what folks tend to find, and it's interesting because um, I I will share with you that I play this game with physicians a lot, um, and physicians often find the yes but to actually be really comforting. It's their job to give feedback. It's their job mm-hmm. to like look for ways to, um, you know, uh, like find what a problem is and solve that problem so for physicians that feels very comfortable and they can go on for a long time Um, but sometimes for other folks that yes but feels you know feels really uncomfortable like you did you kind of run out of things to say so let's try it with yes and and um why don't you start so tell me what you're going to do this weekend
0: okay this weekend I'm going to go running outside
1: Yes. And I love to run outside in the summer and work up a good sweat. One of my favorite things to do.
0: Yes. And you get so much great exercise during the summer because it's hot. So you start sweating a lot more. So in my mind, I always think I'm going to lose more weight during the summer than say winter.
1: Yes. And one of the things I love about running in the summer is that there's sort of a community of runners around you. I like to run on the canals so lots of people around and it makes it more fun and interesting.
0: Yes. And you get to listen to all the sounds of the city. If you're in the city or if you're in the suburbs, you get to listen to the birds and, you know, maybe a dog barking from a neighbor's home, you know, et cetera.
1: Yes. And that's one of the things I love about running outside. It really sort of helps me get out of my head and kind of connect with what's happening around me.
0: Yes. And it kind of soothes your soul basically, because since you're connecting to everything else, it it kind of just helps you center yourself. Right.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. So I'll pause us there and just talk about, like, one of the things I love about that is that you can easily see the juxtaposition, right? With yes and, well, I'll ask you, uh, Angel, as you're thinking about that, what was different for you about that second round than the first round?
0: I think this one had a more positive tone to it um, than the first round. The first round, um, I, I felt like there's, because of the yes but you're you're at you might be thinking of negative ways to impact that first statement.
1: I think that that's true. I think that in a lot of ways you're really with yes, but it can feel not always, but it can feel a little bit mm-hmm. like you're trying to pick a fight. Um, yeah. Versus, yes, and where it feels like your job is to keep the conversation going. And that's one of the principles that we like to um, bring into our conversations about public speaking. If we're giving these activities and asking folks to think about um, a relationship with an audience, what if your job as a public speaker is not just to share facts? What if your job is to keep the conversation going, even though that person in the audience is not actually responding out loud to you, they're taking notes, they're thinking, but if you see your role as co-creating, as building something new with that audience and keeping the conversation going, then it really changes the way that you approach sharing information with the audience.
0: Yeah, that that is that is obviously very key when you're building. And I mean, when you're speaking in general, when you're communicating, it's key to just build that relationship. And so I wanna take that and follow it with this question because it ties into um, how can you build empathy with audiences when explaining complex information?
1: Yeah, this is actually one of the things that I think is um, the most important part of the research that I do and the trainings that we do um, at Indiana University using improv is the idea that um, folks sometimes forget that when you go to hear a speaker or see a speaker, right, if you think about things like really popular TED talks, for example, the reason why you connect with those speakers, the reason why you connect with um, you know, somebody like Brene Brown, for example, who's a great public speaker, is um, because they display trust and credibility. And yeah. trust and credibility are primarily built non-verbally. They're actually not built with words. We have good research to support that. So as a speaker, part of what we encourage our um, presenters to think about, again, when we're talking about sharing complicated information, that it's not just the information itself that helps your audience to get on board with a topic, but it's the way you share that information. Because if a person doesn't believe you, if they don't think you're credible, if they don't trust you, it doesn't matter how good the information is that you're presenting because they don't believe it. And so seeing the delivery of the information as just as important as the quality of the information itself can actually help you accomplish your goals. So we spend a lot of time thinking about um, doing activities that are focused on building nonverbal credibility and trust with audiences. And so that can be everything from, for example, one of the ways that we train our speakers to get ready to speak to an audience, particularly if you're giving a more traditional kind of public talk. So you've got an audience of people, you know, pre-COVID, you've got an audience of people standing in a room. You know, you can come into a room and mess around with the tech at the podium and, um, you know, make sure everything's working okay. And then just sort of stand behind the podium and drink your water until the, the session starts. Or you can walk up to the first row introduce yourself and ask the audience members questions like what brought you here today, what are you most excited to hear right those really small shifts are shifts that illustrate that you are credible and trustworthy to an audience so very small behaviors can change the way an audience perceives um, a speaker.
0: Well, in- and in that regard, I, I should say I mean I've, I've never been one to go out and do a speech in public, you know do something in an auditorium. I mean uh, this is this medium is probably the first time that I've actually just gone out and spoken uh, as much as I do here but it does it does provide maybe also a calming effect to the individual to the speaker because now you're sharing some little bit of insight with the audience members, with those that are right there in front of you, who if, if history serves us right, they might get picked on, if you will, by the speaker at some point during the speech, if, if that uh, presents itself, right? Because a lot of times, very engaging speakers will just say, hey, you out there, and they will pro- probably point out to the first person on the first row. And so that kind of sets up that report, if you will, um, right away and then a question I had while you were while you were saying you were talking about this is how how can a speaker say what type of body language uh do they do they represent because um they could probably do that but then what makes them to kind of tie it back in what makes them be trustworthy when it comes to body language, because people might come in and, and I know you can't see us uh, for the folks that are listening, but they can come in and have their arms all wrapped around their chest and, and that might not be a welcoming posture. So what, what kind of body language do you see in people who are successful in being that trustworthy individual to an audience?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, one of the things that we try to encourage folks to do and why we use these improv techniques as, t- as tools to teach um, you really smart folks to communicate more effectively um, to non experts is the idea that um, scripting your body language is um, a surefire way to disconnect from an audience, that actually being overly scripted is one of the things that we know reduces credibility. So for those of you that maybe think, um, oh, this talk is really important, I'm gonna write it all out. um, Unfortunately, that actually will not serve your final purpose well. So Mm -hmm. instead, what we recommend to folks is a different approach to practicing both the verbal and nonverbal message together. So when I work with folks um, who are, whether you're giving a talk or you're trying to connect with a client across the table, let's say you have a series of points that you need to get across. What we recommend is that you practice each of your kind of main points or practice each of your um, sections of the information that you're sharing in sort of discrete chunks. So um, if you practice, for example, if you were to practice the speech all the way through from beginning to end. Usually what will happen is you'll mess up somewhere in the middle. So the beginning of your speech gets super well practiced and the end of your speech sort of falls apart because you never quite make it to the end when you're practicing, right? So instead practicing your talk in modular sections, right? So practice this chunk and then practice this chunk and practicing them out of order um, is one of the strategies that we use to help our, um, our, again, our physicians, our scientists, our tech folks to communicate more effectively. And then asking, um, always practicing with a person, so you never want to just practice by yourself, but practicing with a person. And then asking that individual with whom you're practicing a set of questions that are maybe different than what you might think. So um, I don't know about you, but whenever I have to give a talk, I usually find a colleague or a family member to practice with. And um, when I do it, I, I used to sort of ask them, so what did you think? And I love my family members and my colleagues, but they usually respond with, oh yeah, it was good or maybe move your hands a little less, or maybe you could be louder here. And those are fine. Those are helpful things, but it really doesn't give you tangible advice for what to do next. So we have a series of questions that we use um, that I can share with um, your team that ask um, more specific questions to help refine your message. So questions like, what do you remember most about what I just said is a great idea of what you should keep doing. Or a question like, what still don't you understand? After I've given this talk to you, what still don't you understand? Those kinds of questions give you really tangible things to improve on um, that will help you to, um, by proxy, build that trust and credibility that you're most interested in.
0: Yeah, those are those are great tips um, on how to prepare yourself to give that speech. Um, but I wanna move on to the effect of the speech so the information that's being passed on to the to the listeners uh and and let's say and one of the things that we try to do here in our ascii anything space is bring down a chosen topic to a level where anybody who listens to this podcast can understand it a lot of the stuff that we talk here is very technical uh we're very techie oriented obviously we're an it consulting company so we we strive uh, to be the best at what we do, but sometimes that translation uh, from the very high tech topics uh, to kind of bring it down, it kind of gets lost. So, what do you think? It's important for scientists or any other uh, tech-minded folks to translate expertise to the for the public, basically to bring it down so that anybody who can pick up, say, this episode or any or any uh, tech talk or things of that nature can't understand what's being said?
1: That's a great question. And one of the things that um, we've studied a lot in terms of how we can use these experiential activities to help folks who are tech-minded or science-minded communicate really complicated information with folks who are non-experts. And the first thing I think that it's important to remember is that everyone is an expert in something. So even if your audience member is not an expert or or the person with whom you're speaking, your client, whomever is not an expert in your topic, they do have expertise. It's just not in the same area as yours. So making sure that you're not necessarily thinking about dumbing down a concept, but maybe distilling a concept might be a useful sort of framework to put on that. I always think about it like when you um, put a pot of soup on the stove and you let it simmer kind of all day, it gets thicker and thicker. And it's that like really thick, rich stuff at the end that, that you want to kind of communicate to an audience, right? So think of it like, distilling a message down instead of dumbing a message down, so I think that's a first step is sort of shifting your frame. The second thing I think that you can do is um, keep in mind the idea of um, a concept that's actually been studied in marketing quite a bit, but that we use a lot in communication when we're talking about communicating expertise and it's a cognitive bias called the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge basically is a theory that says that when you become an expert in something, it's really hard to communicate that expertise to a non-expert because you have developed a sort of muscle memory around that expertise. And the best way to explain the curse of knowledge is um, to offer the metaphor the example of teaching someone to drive. So, if you drive all the time, you've developed an expertise in driving. And that expertise comes in such a way that you don't have to think about the idea that when you get into the car, you have to adjust your seat before you put your seatbelt on, right? That's something that now you do without even thinking. You look and feel where the seat is and decide that it's in the right spot or not in the right spot. And that doing through feel is expertise. And so when you think about the way that that approaches, the way that that helps us to approach communicating with non-experts is to actually find someone who you trust, who is a non-expert and try to explain a concept. So the way that we do this in our workshops is um, we actually usually use a section of um, the sports pages from a newspaper. Right. So, um, we often use, um, uh, a particular quote, uh, from the Indianapolis star, um, that is, uh, during a time when, uh, the Colts were playing the Patriots and Tom Brady, um, uh, you know, is part of the story. And for those that are not sports fans, um, Tom Brady is sort of considered uh, an arch enemy of the Colts, if you will. And that concept in and of itself that Tom Brady is kind of an arch enemy of the Colts is really important context that is in the water for sports fans, right? They know that already. But if you know nothing about football and you just read that section of the sports page, you're going to get bogged down in the jargon of sports, right? What's a pick six, what's a safety, what's a down, right? Mm-hmm. So you get bogged down in that, um, in that jargon. And so simply asking folks to kind of go back and say, rather than defining jargon, go back and think about what is the story that you want to tell that person who is listening? Who is the villain? Who is the hero? What is the, you know, what is the arc of that story? And starting from that place of telling a story as opposed to just defining jargon can really get you to that distilled message of what you want to accomplish. So we spend a lot of time really focusing on um, thinking about how much information someone needs to know to actually get on board with a particular concept. And it's often less than an expert would think.
0: Well, I think both examples are perfect uh, because I'm currently living in one of those examples right now. I'm teaching my son how to drive and uh, needless to say, everything you mentioned is correct. Um, I, and, it, and it really is all part of the system that we live in, right? Because as you mentioned, when you get in your car, most cars nowadays have a setting that you just push a button and the seat push, pushes you to the right position. Your mirrors on the outside are perfect. All you have to do is basically just touch that mirror in the middle of the car and that's it. It, it. That's all you do. How do you explain that to a teenager who's never driven a car, who's getting in for the first time, who the only concept of getting in a car is just getting in the car, putting the seatbelt on and then, okay, dad, mom, drive. Um, so it, it is very hard. I agree. It's very hard to sit down and at a school parking lot and say, okay, have you checked your mirrors? He's looking around, he's looking around and, and I don't see any movement from his hand checking the mirrors, you know, moving the mirrors around because the mirrors are how high I left them. So it's very hard for you to sit there and kind of just go, okay, just push the button, you know, push it so you can check the mirror on the left, make sure you get this much space on this side and then this much, this much space on the other side. It's very hard. So I do agree with everything you said, uh, I'm sorry. I, let me get off my, uh, my little tangent here, but um, so.
1: (laughs) But, and how, you know, you make a good concept, you make a good point there. And I think that that's important when we're thinking about um, communicating a complicated concept to someone who maybe doesn't have that expertise again, like, you know, one of the things, most important things that you can do is to ask an audience what they know already about a topic. Right or the person with whom you're speaking. Um, we talk about this a lot when we're talking with um, physicians and helping them to think about how to communicate expertise with patients. I have a friend of, uh, who a few years ago um, was adopting a child from the foster system and um, lots of foster kids have disrupted sleep, right? That's a very common thing that happens to foster kids. And so she met with this sleep specialist who you know, was gonna be like the key to everything to help her kids sleep through the night. And as you know, you're exhausted, right? You're like, that. your kid's not sleeping. You're you know, going through this really stressful process. She sat down with a sleep specialist who had a list of like 26 things to do. And he essentially read the list of 26 things to her and then handed her the sheet of paper. And she had already tried like 12 of those. And she felt so discouraged at the end of that conversation, where instead he could have started by saying, tell me what you've done already. And asking that question, like, tell me what you've done already, tell me what you know already about this topic, allows it to be much more of a conversation and much less about I am the expert and I am telling Mm -hmm. you what to do. And it's in that space that we're able to build that sense of credibility and trust. And I think that that's a really important part of this shift in seeing communication, not just as message transmission, but seeing communication as developing relationships and developing shared meaning, which is really what we want from our communication with others.
0: Yeah, I, I will certainly take uh, you up on that because um, I've I've seen a lot of YouTube uh, watching lately from him, just watching YouTube on how to drive things like that. So I will sit down and we will have this conversation. Uh this way about it. How, how, what have you learned from your YouTube experience so far? <laughs> hey on hell, this is producer Brian. I just want to ask real quick, is your car okay? It is okay. It is okay. fine. Uh, just, it's it's fine. It seemed like it might not be at some <laughs> point. <laughs> I just wanted to check. Okay. It's fine. Yeah. I make sure we go drive in very big open spaces where there's nothing around. So we're fine. <laughs> um So let me, I'm gonna switch gears here a little bit, uh, Krista. I wanna ask you about culture because one thing that's very important for us here at Motion Consulting is our culture. And one of the things that a lot of businesses and companies struggle with is the whole culture versus climate conundrum, uh, where the culture of a business is the result of the separate climates that exist within a company structure. Every group, department or team might have their own climates, even their own culture. What do you think is easier to influence, the climate or the culture?
1: So climate is certainly easier to influence in my experience because it is smaller, right? It's in Mm -hmm. sort of the realm of your influence. And culture is harder, right? It's in the water. Um, I have a, a great mentor who used to say that you can have culture by design or culture by default, which do you want? Mm. And I love that because it helps you to think about what are the little tiny behaviors that make up that organizational culture, that larger culture. So sometimes we use the term organizational micro practices, that it's these little tiny behaviors that make up a climate of a, a team. And then as a result, the larger culture of an organization. And it's in that space to me that the principles of improv actually become super valuable, right? So one of the things that um, improv uh, theater artists and um, applied improv practitioners often talk about is the idea that we build climate and culture together through conversation. It's through talk, through discourse, right? Fancy words, but just through talk that we build our our organizational climate and our organizational culture. So knowing that that's the case, part of what your responsibility is as a leader, and even if you're leading from the middle, right? You don't have to have title of supervisor or whatever to Mm -hmm. be a leader, but leading from the middle, one of the things that you can do is encourage conversations about climate and culture. And I think that the way that you do that is um, through an improv principle that I love, and that is bring a brick, not a cathedral. And what that essentially means is that every conversation that you have is an opportunity to build something new with the person with whom you're speaking. Every conversation is about building something new. And if you come with the blueprint for your cathedral, the blueprint for Notre Dame, then that other person's probably coming with a cathedral as well. And you're gonna clash, right? You're gonna argue because you've already got a plan in your head. But if instead you come with a pile of bricks and you try to build something together, you're gonna have something that might look even more beautiful than what you originally thought because you're working together in conversation to build that new thing. And I think that that's part of what makes climate such an important part of building a culture is that idea that each of us, each of our little behaviors help to inform the way that we approach our work and the way that we approach working together as a team.
0: Well, and I think you bring up an interesting point in that climate should feed that culture because that's that's the beauty of diversity. The beauty of having difference of opinions is that to use your metaphor about uh, bringing a brick um, when you're building a cathedral is every little climate every little group can sort of put their own brick into that culture and then that just flourishes into the cathedral in the end um, which then turns into that culture of the overall uh, of the company of the organization and so that's that's one of the things that i know that we uh each year at Mosher, I mean, we have a lot of different groups, a lot of different teams um, with a lot of different personalities, a lot of different backgrounds, but each, each one of those groups, each one of those individuals provides us with ideas, with, with themes, with things that we can build up uh, as a company, but we need those grassroots ideas. We need those, those uh, reaching out for information. Um, And and, I mean, uh, the the folks that listen to this this podcast have heard this in the past. I mean, our CEO takes, for example, our climate survey, our our best places to work survey every year. They take that to heart and they read each and every one of those comments. Um, And even throughout the year when that's not going on, when somebody has an idea or a brick that they'd like to start laying down, um, they bring it up to them directly and it starts happening. Um, If it's a good idea that we can definitely produce, we will take on it. Um, And, you know, we've learned from mistakes in the past. We've learned from missteps. Uh, But at the end of the day, what counts is that we're giving everybody a voice. We're letting everybody come in with that brick and letting them put it on the floor and sort of put that cement around it so that somebody else can then lay a brick on top of it and sort of build up uh, that that cathedral.
1: Yeah. One of the things that you said here, I'll put my um, sort of organizational development hat on for a minute, which is some of the work that I do with IU School of Medicine. And um, this is uh, sort of at the bounds of my expertise. So I'll I'll share some information here and then um, maybe producer Brian can fact check me a little bit. So it's my understanding that there's this researcher, John Gottman, who has studied um, couples, married couples for years and years, um, like 500 couples for over 25 years to look for the uh, things that make marriages stick. And he argues that there's this sort of golden ratio of positive to negative interactions that you need within a marriage to make the marriage work. And that golden ratio is five to one. So you need five positive interactions to one negative interaction in order to make the marriage stick. And they've sort of replicated some of that work within organizations and found that it's slightly less so. Three to one is the golden ratio. So you need three positive interactions to one negative interaction at work to make the culture or the climate of um, your team a positive one. I mention that in part because there's no way that the CEO of Mosier or that even the C-suite, the folks that are in leadership positions can be all of those three-to-one interactions that you need. It's got to be the individuals within the organization. And for me, that's, again, where we can go back to one of the principles of improv, which is make your partner look good, make your scene partner look good, right? So as you think about um, the climate of your team, what are you doing to make sure that those around you are meeting that three to one golden ratio of positive to negative interactions. And it doesn't need to be big things, right? It could be little things like, Mm -hmm. you know, CCing somebody's boss on a job well done email, right? Mm -hmm. Something really small, but that sort of public acknowledgement of like, hey, you're really rocking it this week, I think can make a huge difference in terms of feeling connected, both as the um, sender of that email and the receiver of that email.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's, that's something that I know we here at Mosher do a lot of the times, um, a lot of people within leadership and not even leadership, just folks, the general folk. I mean, we, we invite everybody to do what we call shout outs um, for each other. So it is, again, it's, it's something that you build in through that climate, but then it kind of permeates into the whole culture. And so people know that that is, I don't want to say expected, but that is something that's already ingrained into the fabric of the folks that work here. Um, so people aren't, you know, when they get that shout out, like you said, they kind of—it's a moment of pride, but it's also a moment of pride for the people who sharing the knowledge. So yeah, that's very key in developing that climate and that culture.
1: That's one of the reasons why, like I said, I like using the principles of improv to talk about these things because it really does dovetail well with um, the way that we know we want our organizations to function. So thinking about even small things like, um, you know, starting meetings with a check-in, you know, or, um, you know, even playing a little game can be a great way of just reminding folks that we often spend more time at work than we do with our families. And (laughs) so the more that we can make that climate a positive one, the more likely folks are going to have a good time at work and want to stay.
0: Absolutely. Um, This has been fun, I have to say. Um, This has been one of the the best conversations I've had in this podcast, uh, in this podcast history. But before we go, I do have, uh, a couple of questions that I like to ask you that uh, we like to ask some of our guests so I'll start with this one what's a commonly held belief about your expertise that you passionately disagree with.
1: I know. Uh, I really fundamentally discourage people from picturing audiences in their underwear when they're speaking in public. (laughs) I don't know where that came from, but it is a terrible idea. And look, even just me talking about it, I'm turning red. It is a recipe to make (laughs) me more nervous. Um, I instead much prefer um, just chat with your audience ahead of time. They are all regular people. And I always remind folks, like, think about when you have seen someone like bomb a talk, never are you sitting in the audience like, ha ha sucker, you should have practiced more, right? No, you're like dying inside for them. You want them to get it out. And so I just, remember your audience is pulling for you. Um, They want you to be successful when you're speaking. So yeah, please don't picture your audience in their underwear. It's not gonna help you any.
0: Okay. Right along the same lines, uh, what's something that everyone in your industry space should start or stop doing?
1: Um, everyone should stop scripting out their speeches. Um, please don't write your speech out, type it out longhand, and then get up in front of a group of people and read. Reading information is useful. And certainly uh, all of us read information, right? We're all on our phones, we're all consuming incredible amounts of information, but people come to hear you speak, to connect with you. It's more efficient to give folks something to read, but that's not why people come to listen to a talk. They come because they want to connect with you. So rather than scripting, try to do what you can to um, provide chunks of information that you think would be most valuable to your audience members.
0: Interesting. Um, Okay, last one. When you first started in your expertise, what was harder than you expected?
1: It was harder than I expected to get out of my own way, which is one of my favorite Mm -hmm. principles of improv. Um, And some of that comes from imposter syndrome, that I think that all of us Feel. I think for me, especially a woman um, serving in the space that I serve in medicine and healthcare and science um, and not being a scientist. So I'm going into a space that's not really my space. Um, it was really hard to trust in these principles and um, just be willing to be open and be willing to make mistakes. Um, and I think the more that I can remind myself that I do have expertise that I have developed research in these areas and, um, and that I am a credible speaker, the more I think that my audience is on board with me and connects with me.
0: I think we can all agree, you're a very credible speaker. Uh, Krista, before we go, um, could you share a little bit about what you're currently working on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So during the pandemic here in Indiana, one of the ways that we um, distributed the COVID-19 vaccine was through an existing call center, 211. So here in Indianapolis and Marion County um, and throughout the state, actually, if you need any kind of social service, you can call 211 and it'll connect you to the social services that you need. Um, very early on, the secretary of FSSA, um, the Family and Social Services Organization, repurposed the 211 line to be a vaccine hotline. So I spent from right around Christmas time through June 1st training a group of call center employees using improv techniques to communicate about the vaccine. And it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my entire career. The people that I worked with, these call center employees, who um, you know, have um, you know, not a ton of uh, scientific expertise were troopers getting on board learning about the background of the vaccine, learning how to talk about that in a way that could help dispel myths. And so um, the research that I'm working on right now looks at how improv techniques were particularly helpful, getting a group of kind of non-experts on board and able to share that information with the public. And I think um, I I feel really proud um, that I have been a part of that really important work during the pandemic. So it's
0: been great. Wow. That's a, that's a great, uh, topic. How, how, I mean, I know you mentioned a little bit how they were troopers, but how, how do you think it brought them from being just a, you know, you run the mill call centers to just now learning about all of these new topics, you know, like you said, scientific terms, uh, things of that, and then sort of just talking to the general public about it. How does that turn out?
1: So, One of the things that we found in the process of training our call center employees is that most of them had the same questions that many of their callers had. Mm -hmm. And so if we could start from this place of, what questions do you have? And then what metaphors were helpful to you in explaining or understanding the vaccine itself or the process of rolling out the vaccine? What myths did they believe in that we could dispel that if we saw them as representative of our audience and saw opportunities to connect with them through improv, that they were much more likely to be able to share that information with the public. And in fact, were more credible with the people who called. That I think that traditionally in call center spaces, they work from a very strict script. And what we found out was that scripting actually diminished credibility rather than Mm. increased it. And when you think about it, that's true. I don't know about you, but when I've called a call center in the past and I get someone who's clearly reading to me, I'm kind of over it pretty quickly. But if I could give them very flexible, accurate bits of information that they can then put into their own words, they were much more likely to um, be supportive of those folks that were calling and maybe had questions.
0: Yeah that definitely makes sense. I I know the feeling of calling somewhere and getting somebody to just read from a script and just be so ah, yeah. This is it's, this go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say it's discouraging, right? You mm-hmm. it, you know you have a question and it's clear that that person's just reading it from a script, likely not understanding your question, not hearing your question. So that's one of the places where from an improv standpoint mirroring becomes really helpful, right? Just sort of sharing mm-hmm. back, that I want to make sure I got your question right before jumping into an answer. So, and how, you know, I think that your experience is spot on.
0: Well, I, I just got to say that's great, great work. Thank you very much once again for joining us today on Ask Anything. Uh, doc, Dr. Krista Longting, thank you.
1: Thank you so much. This was a blast.
0: Thank you for listening in to this week's edition of Asking Anything, presented by Moshe Consulting. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation with Dr. Krista Longton about improving communication through improvisation. Season two is just getting started, and we have a great deal of content coming your way. We'd love it if you would join us next week when we continue to dive deeper with our resident experts and what they're currently working on. If you have an idea or a topic you'd like us to explore, please reach out to us through our social media channels. In the meantime, please remember to give us a rating and subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, so long, everybody.